0: Welcome to a new year and a new episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and happy new year, happy 2022 to everyone, and uh, especially to you, Akil.
1: Uh, Right back at you, Andy.
0: Now, this may actually air as the second episode of the new year, who knows, um, because of our trip to Florida. But um, in our last episode that we recorded, we uh, started. Because the
1: Florida episode is live.
0: Yes um these are these are live on tape except that they're not because i edit them <laughs> so because because i have a lot of bloopers well i think actually we may want to talk about our editing process so that the audience knows uh the degree of authenticity that we're providing them with um but at any rate um in the last episode we uh began a recap and we got up through about the first uh, thirteen episodes of last year. Not not going, not playing clips from each episode, but from some of them, and we took some of your questions as well. Um, and so we're going to continue with that. Sixteen episodes into the year, we learned that President Biden uh, was go- was going to be forming a commission uh, on possible reform of the Supreme Court. So they were going to consider various things like. Packing the court or adding justice to the court, whatever you want to call it, term limits and so forth, and it was clear that uh, uh, Kia was going to testify before that commission. So we laid out some thoughts that he had about so-called term limits, and of course we we uh, sort of initiated that uh, that term of term so-called term limits, that terminology, um, and it became important because. Uh, one of the questions here was if you were going to institute uh, a change in the temporal nature of a Supreme court, court justice's service, would you be able to do that by means of a const only a constitutional amendment, or by a mere statute? And you know, it became obvious to 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 us. Certainly, it occurred to me in, in speaking that term limits per se, meaning you're going to step down would pretty clearly be unconstitutional without a a constitutional amendment. So, therefore, I felt that it would be unfortunate to refer to it as term limits. And so I began calling it so-called term limits, which I think Akhil nodded approvingly. On that, so I continue to watch my watch my terminology there.
1: Uh, Yeah, just to elaborate on that and uh, and quote one of uh, Andy's and my heroes in the process. First, um, start with the Constitution. It says in Article Three that the judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. So it's very important that my proposal, strictly speaking, respects that. You do. Um, when, when you're named to the Supreme Court, hold your office for good behavior. You are a justice for good behavior. You uh, draw your salary during good behavior. You serve. You you do distinctly Supreme Court related things for good behavior. But after 18 years, your Supreme Court duty roster is modified. So. It's not, from a strict point of view, term limits because, to repeat, you're a justice for life, you have the title for life, you have the office for life, you have the salary for life, you have Supreme Court-related duties for life, but the duties do change typically after 18 years. So that's why it's so-called term limits. And that's why I believe it can be done easily and obviously by a mere statute. Um, The hero that I wanted to invoke uh, andy's heard this story before is um, from abraham lincoln who uh, went to ask his audience the following question he says if you call a tail a leg how many legs does a dog have the answer is 4 because it doesn't matter what you call it, it matters what it is. Okay? Um so it really isn't strictly speaking term limits. You can call it term limits if you want, you know, as a shorthand, but but deep down you you know, it isn't strictly strictly speaking term limits. It's so-called term limits.
0: Well, names matter. We learned that in the Reagan era, right? When we had the MX missile was the, you know, the peacekeeper. The peacekeeper? Yes. Yes. Indeed. Yes,
1: the strategic defense initiative rather than Star
0: Wars. Right. So here's a clip from that episode.
1: I'm going to propose uh, keeping the court size at nine, not monkeying with that. That's kind of been settled for a long time, and and there are dangers of unsettling it, which we just discussed. Keeping the court size at nine, but moving to... 18-year terms for the justices. And I'm going to try to see how many, going to count, um, how many ways in which this will actually be an improvement, just as we counted all the ways in which the presidential succession law was actually um, imbecilic. And I think we got up to 16, 17, 18, something like that. I'm going to see if I can get up to at least eight, maybe 10 different, though complementary ways in which... 18-year term limits for the justices would be a better model of judicial independence and constitutional democracy than the one we have today. And later I'm going to try to defend the idea that we can do all of this without a constitutional amendment, just by mere statute, the same kind of statute we would need, for example, to, to
0: pack the court or, or, or modify its, its structure. Let's say that the Biden commission recommends your proposal and it's adopted by the, somehow, by some miracle. Maybe they re- listen to our last podcast and get rid of the filibuster and uh, and get rid of, uh, and, and allow the statute to pass. And now it's implemented. Now, uh, some years down the road, the Republicans somehow gain their own trifecta, um, and they decide, no, this has actually worked against us um, somehow in the court, or it will work against us, or we don't like it, or just whatever, and they, they say, we're going, to pass, we're going to pass a statute now
1: to undo it. Right, and by trifecta, of course, this goes back to an, uh, one of our earlier conversations, we mean uh, the Republicans winning the House, the Senate, and the presidency.
0: Correct. So first of all, could they do it?
1: Yes. How, one, one, and how would it be done? Well, one virtue, I think, of my system is that it doesn't entrench this um, new approach. If it turns out to be mistaken in some way, uh, just as we transitioned into it, I think uh, by mere statute, I think we could transition out of it. So a lot would depend on whether this new model was basically seen by the citizenry, by uh, good lawyers, by the Supreme Court bar, by academics, by lower court judges, and even the justices themselves, senior and active, was seen as um, an improvement. And, And if it wasn't, I think it's a virtue that we could transition out of it. And if it is seen as an improvement, then even if the Republicans win the trifecta, House, Senate, Presidency, so they could actually uh, change it by mere statute, maybe they'd choose not to. And that's going to be more likely if um, they were part of the political coalition that adopted the statute to begin with. Now, you say, well, that's never going to happen. Well, it depends, again, on the transition rules. Maybe, for example, the transition rules are we're not even going to do this immediately. Um, the first president that's going to get this, you know, automatic appointment in the first year is going to be the president who wins in 2024. Um, and if that was the, the the statute, oh, well, the Republicans, you know, might think to themselves, okay, we, we like our odds in 2024. Um, we're going to... We're going to beat this Biden guy, or maybe he's not even going to be around. Maybe it's going to be Kamala Harris, or who knows? Um, So depending on how the thing is phased in, especially if it's phased in with a certain kind of veil of ignorance, even if it automatically gave Biden, let's say, an extra, extra, so to speak, slot in his third year because it's passed, let's say, um, two years from now. um, Okay, that's just the first of many automatic um, biennial new justices, and most of them are going to be in the future, and we don't know who that president's going to be in 2025 and 2027 and
0: 2029, 2031, etc. Well, also, I think, you know, under the postulated scenario that we just raised, in other words, the Republicans win the trifecta, why would they want to undo this? They're about to get two Supreme Court positions that they'll be able to confirm, you know. So exactly so, it would so. Be, you know, maybe they might do it at the end of their term or something. like that. Maybe a lame duck Congress would want to do it if they've lost the election. That means they have to have to implement our earlier yeah, but, Instagov, right? And that would look
1: very stinky, wouldn't it?
0: Well, that that there, I mean, I. I think if recent history has proven anything, it's that the Republicans can live with looking stinky. <laughs> okay. So the reason I, I selected that is that I think it shows that the you know, a lot of thought went into this proposal. In other words, it it isn't you know, most of the objections that people would come up with when they look at it for two seconds, uh, you know, you, you address. And in fact you, you you say, Well, maybe I come up with eight or nine uh reasons to support our arguments. We wound up with eighteen arguments, you know, to support to support it. So it was actually, you know, a very detailed, although easy to understand, uh, proposal. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed with the report of the commission. Um, because I understand you have friends on the commission. Maybe you don't feel that free to to criticize it uh, as much, but you know, because basically the report is like a kitchen sink of everything that anybody said, and they're all, you know, we talk about false equivalencies. Everything is sort of listed as equally meritorious. Um, you know, one it's, person says that, oh, you need a constitutional amendment, so therefore that's raised as an as a serious objection to your proposal when it really isn't.
1: Um, it's not quite a kitchen sink in that, actually, I don't think they, uh, the report cataloged all 18 reasons and there maybe were some additional ones that it added but it didn't give all 18 and and andy one of the great things about this podcast as we kind of talk and think out loud and you ask me questions and and i try to answer them and I sometimes ask you questions back is we we are modeling for our audience kind of um uh reasoning um and sometimes as we heard in our Um, uh, The part one of this um, recap of the first year, sometimes people um, actually um, ratchet down uh, their ideas. Philip Bobbitt changed his mind actually and pulled back a little bit um, when it came to Senate trials of uh, ex-officers, in in, in that case, um, ex-President Trump. But as you and I started talking back and forth, rather than sort of ratcheting down uh, or modify, uh, uh, watering down my um, rationales, I actually started to identify additional ones. I thought I might be able to get up to 8 to 10. As it turns out, we, we ended up with with 18 in all, and in my testimony, I was able to succinctly enumerate my testimony before the Biden commission later on, which was another episode. We actually I think that over the course of the year, three different episodes on this at different times, but in the middle episode, showcasing that the Biden uh, commission testimony, I was able to go bam, 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 very quickly listing the 18 reasons. And our audience members can, can see all of this on the, on the president's website and we'll put it up again on, on, on our website. Uh, but I could do that because you and I in our conversation had actually um, made progress in, in uh, the, the, uh, the back and forth. Um, and uh, so as the audience heard, I thought I'd start out, I'd maybe have eight or 10 reasons and actually at least 18. Um, and not all of them actually were in the Biden commission report, even as they had some objections that I thought, frankly,
0: uh, quite candidly were not well taken. So do you think that at this point where we sit here at the, at the start of the new year, um, that the proposal has, has some life to it?
1: Yes. And here's why, you know, our podcast audience is growing. Maybe one of the people out there is a house staffer or a Senate staffer. I hope so. And maybe they will bring this idea to the attention of a senator or a house member, maybe someone who wants to run for president, for example, and this might be part of that person's um, a set of of good government um, reform ideas. So, and maybe actually because of this podcast, um, they'll hear all the 18 reasons rather than just a few of them and some kind of baloney objections um, that were in the report that kind of, in order to get unanimity, just kind of had to to be kind of the least common denominator sort of thing.
0: Well, to that end, let me, uh, let's go over a question that we got from our audience on this. Um, I think that the this is answered in the um, attachments that we put on the, you know, in the show notes that we put on the website that has the entire proposal. But look, if somebody listened to the podcast, came up with this question, I think it's reasonable that we, that we take it on. So Dennis Mack, a uh, listener wrote, uh, I appreciate that there's lots, this is a multi-part question. I appreciate that there's lots of prestige to be called an associate justice of the Supreme court, but would not many people refuse the offer of the nomination, this is in the context of a rump appointment, uh, hoping instead to be nominated to a full term at the next available opportunity.
1: So uh, to give the context, you serve um, on the front bench, so to speak, for 18 years. And then, you, again, you're a justice you know, for good behavior, for, for, for life, so to speak. Um, but after 18 years, you rotate off the front bench. You don't hear the on banc cases as a rule. You ride circuit. You help the court pick the cases that uh, it's going to uh, review with care, a thing called um, a certiorari uh, granting process. You, you do um, administrative things, you do public relations things. So, so you're a justice and you do court-related things, um, but you're generally not in the, on the front bench um, after 18 years. But what happens, I say, if, uh, let's say, someone um, dies before 18 years? Well, it's just like the Senate. On on this model, let me take one step back there. Nine justices, 18-year sort of standard service. So a new person comes on board it basically every two years, if you do the math. Nine justices, 18 years. And once you rotate off, you're still available um, to pinch hit in in various ways. But what happens if someone, let's say, dies early, uh, before the 18 years? Well, um, immediately, initially, you can have one of the senior justices uh, filling the spot. And, um, and, and that's a virtue of the system is the court isn't ever short-staffed the way it is now. If it's a retirement rather than a death, people tend to retire on the condition of um, their retirement will take effect when their successor is confirmed. So there wouldn't be um, any gap. But, but let's, let's imagine that there's an early death, God forbid. Let's imagine it happens after 14 years. So immediately one of the senior justices jumps in Fine. But, the, but there is now a vacancy and the president does get to nominate someone f- to fill that vacancy, but they're only filling the four years, the remaining four years, the rump of the 18-year term. Just as in the Senate today, you're elected for six years. Every two years, a third of the Senate rotates. Just like in this model, every two years, a ninth of the court rotates. One person rotates you know, off into senior status. One person rotates on for 18 years. So just like the Senate, every two years, there's a rotation. Senate is a third every two years. This would be a ninth every two years. But just like when the Senate, if someone dies or retires early, there can be a replacement senator for the, the rump of the term, not for a full six-year term, but for whatever is left of um, the outgoing senator's six-year term. So it would be the same thing here. Now, the question was, why would anyone take Two years. It, suppose someone dies. Oh, let's say four years. Someone dies, and it won't be me. But you know, let, let's 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 imagine someone who really would love to be on the Supreme Court. The phone rings, and the president says, "I'd like to put you on the court for you know to fill out um, uh, the late Justice So and So's term." You know, I think most people would not say, gee, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to wait and play the lottery so that four years later, it might not even be you as president, you know, um, will pick me. And by the way, when, if you tell the president no, what are the odds that the president, if that president is going to ask you four years later? And, and so, so I can't imagine, actually, most people uh, saying thanks, but no thanks. Um, but if they do, um, maybe you don't really want that person on the court in any capacity, truth
0: be told. Now, wouldn't that person be appointed for life?
1: Yes. You'd, you'd serve on the front bench for four years, but then after that, mm-hmm. you'd be a senior justice. You'd um, ride circuit and and give lectures and um, and do public education and help with the docket management certiorari process and do all the things that that emeritus justices do.
0: Senior so justices. That's a pretty nice gig, actually.
1: <laughs> yes, and you get your full pay. You know, you, you're you, that's why it's so called. You are a justice for
0: life. You have the office for life. Well, actually, you know, I, let's think about you. For example, you know, you you might not want to serve an 18 year term at this point in your life. You know, but a four year term that might be pretty nice. You know, and and uh, so that the, my point here is that you could have. Very excellent, experienced, you know, j- persons that might not really be. They might be, let's say, I hate to say the term, too old, you know, mm-hmm. for for an eighteen year term, but sure. but would be fine for a rump terms. It would
1: be. It would be this, the the uh, distinguished capstone of a distinguished legal career. And yes, you are a senior justice for the duration um, after you've you've uh, served out the the rump term in this in, in this hypothetical the four
0: years. Okay, and here's the next part of uh, Dennis Mack's question. Would you need a special rule if the sudden opening on the court was that of chief justice?
1: No, um, because uh, now it depends on which version of of my plan you adopt, but the the, the one that I envision, everyone becomes chief justice um, in their last two years. You're an associate justice, basically, for your first 16 years, and in your last two, you're chief. And in the two before that, in effect, you're vice chief, preparing so if the chief dies then the, the vice chief temporarily you know fills uh, in um, and when the new justice comes on board they're they're at the at the bottom of the totem pole and eventually they'll be chief justice after 16 years but the person who's next in line would just be chief justice longer
0: okay with your proposal might we someday have the court issue opinions in a single day with multiple different courts?
1: No, it's no different than today if someone dies or retires. It's just no different at all. But Dennis, here is the interesting thing that you're asking. Are you allowed to participate in, um, for example, uh, the voting and the um, handing down of an opinion if you weren't present at oral argument? Yes. How about if you weren't even on the court at oral argument? Strictly speaking, yes, because you, you could read the briefs and, and 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 catch up. So it's no different than today. And so I could imagine situations where um, they'd want to get involved, especially if it were 4-4, they might need to get involved. Um, if the court was about to dismiss a case, which is what happens when it's 4-4, te- the technical disposition is often called affirmed by an equally divided court. But if the the new justice actually wanted to uh, jump in, the, um, and they wanted to reverse, uh, so it would make a difference even in the disposition. The usual, I think, uh, practice would be to um, hold the oral argument all over again, to put the case over for a whole year, and and uh, argue it to a full bench. You know, that would probably be the standard practice. But I don't. I can imagine at least a situation in which. The new justice says, "I don't need to do all of that. I, I, I can listen to the trans. I can listen to the audio of the oral argument. Um, uh, I can um uh, read all the briefs, and uh, I can be up to speed. And I, I can, I, I want to vote for this opinion or that that opinion, which have already been produced by my colleagues.
0: Um, I believe I could that just, imagine that. Right. I believe that uh, Justice Barrett, when she took uh, when she took her seat um in the last term, uh." It, recused herself from the first couple of cases because she had not uh, read all the papers, wasn't up to speed. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean it's required that she do that. Right. Yeah, you know, but right. Uh, she, right. But that's and she and, and there are
1: customs about all this, but I don't think it would be any different in my proposal um, than um, status quo. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Okay. So back to our clips. So then we had another great guest speaking of, uh, we were talking about people, changing their minds or clarifying their positions and rethinking things. Um, so we had Nadine Strossen, uh, the longtime head of the uh, ACLU, uh, on as uh, as a guest. And, and another dear friend. I just so uh,
1: love Nadine, and she's been such a good friend over so many years. Um, when our son Vic was just a little tyke, um, she uh, sent him uh, a little um, I heart uh, Liberty ACLU t-shirt, which he wore with gusto.
0: And I think this is our first time really discussing much about abortion, which we got into later in Roe versus Wade and progeny. Um, and so she had some uh, some interesting commentary, colloquy with uh, Akil on this. What would your views be about a law that
1: doesn't uh, restrict the the woman, the pregnant woman, the, the 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 mother, um, depending on uh, how how you would describe it, Um, but um, would attach very serious penalties, even criminal penalties, um, to, um, let's say, a third party, could be the biological father or someone who actually thinks he's not the biological father, who um, intentionally and knowingly ends the life... um, of um a very much wanted fetus let's imagine mm-hmm. it's even in the first trimester or something mm-hmm. um and um and the legislature says you know that's that's murder um uh um we're not at all threatening the the the, the choices and the rights of the um woman and it's an assault against her now, let's say mm-hmm. if, if a, a bullet penetrates her um, abdomen and and kills the the fetus and intentionally so it's an assault on her but it's also a crime against this independent morally significant um entity um and um and we're gonna call that murder um uh but it's um uh an it's, we're not limiting the woman's rights, and in fact, we're trying to affirm her right, which is a right to to, um, to um, choose to be a mother as well as to choose um, to terminate a pregnancy. But, uh, some uh, folks who are um, in the pro-choice uh, camp think that that's a thin edge of a very dangerous web uh, wedge. They don't want to acknowledge. Um, this interest at all. But from what I thought I heard you say, I think your position might be different or, or maybe not. I'd love to uh, hear I your you, thoughts. Way,
2: the way you describe it, Akhil, it sounds uh, very, it, it sounds completely reasonable to me. I'm not, I'm not an expert in criminal law, so I don't know. Maybe the term murder might not be applicable because that might imply that we're um, acknowledging the full-fledged humanity and personhood, to use the legal term, uh, which would definitely have other implications that might well undermine the woman's um, choices here. So, But, you know, on the stipulation that the law would be designed in a way that would not, in one wit, reduce her rights, I think the law can respect not only can respect certainly her independent interest as you describe it in, in wanting to carry this pregnancy to term. And we all know how how deeply distressing it is to uh, women and, and and others when uh, there's a miscarriage or, or, you know, for some other reason, they, the pregnancy does not come to term deeply, deeply, deeply distressing. Uh, But I, I, you're absolutely right that uh, I think that I could be read out of the pro-choice camp for, for saying that.
0: Yes. I actually suggested that we call it feticide for that purpose mm-hmm. rather than murder mm-hmm. it um, to try to address that concern that she expressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And back, back to
1: legal labels and whether they uh, – sometimes they may matter and, and other times um, and maybe um, uh, less so. Um, but – Uh, Andy, this is the first time I'm I'm hearing this clip in in many months and it it makes me feel once again very good about our podcast because this is a place where serious people who don't always agree about everything have serious conversations and sometimes people actually um, uh, adjust their position or or see things that they had never quite seen before and, and, and share their new position with um, our audience, and, and you hear Nadine really th- thinking very carefully about this hypothetical um, that, uh, and, and, and offering just a, um, such a, a, a thoughtful and, and, and fair-minded um, response, and then ending with, oh, and in our Twitter world, there are going to be people who are going to run me out of town for even making this concession. Or, you know, seeing the other side of the argument.
0: Yeah, well, she, you know, uh, she was such a gracious individual that it didn't surprise me. That she would be generous in her her thoughts.
1: Not at all. She, yeah, I think I, I I hope our audience listens to that episode. I think it might have been the first where we have a had a, a a woman guest, um, and and a very very distinguished um legal career. And I think in that episode, if our audience listens to it, they will experience what's so great about Nadine Strasser. Great, which I've always known.
0: And then, of course, we had another wonderful guest uh that both you and i are very fond of uh when uh, neil katyal came on um and that was a couple of months later and neil actually stayed for two episodes the first one was kind of more biographical uh about him because he's such an interesting story and after all and we called it a life in the law um and then in the second one, we started getting into some some substantive things um and uh also, just his general approach to uh, litigating and how you know how he prepares, you know, and so forth. There's really a lot of, of interesting things that only he could could relate. So, let's listen to a few uh, aspects of uh, of the life of uh, of one of our great. Supreme Court advocates these days?
3: I will say it is an incredibly intense time in the court. It's kind of like Andy spending a half hour with you. Um, it's uh <laughs> it's a, uh, um, it's a oral argument now is a half hour per side. Um, you know, back in the old days with Daniel Webster and stuff, it was, you know, three days, six days, nine days long, whatever just like a, Indian, a Hindu wedding is three days long normally. <laughs> yeah, yours is short. Mine was compressed to a half hour, three days to a half hour. That was the dictates from, from the powers above. And that is how the Supreme Court works. These three-day or six-day arguments have now been compressed into a half hour per side. And that leaves you as the advocate very little room to make a mistake. In that sense, it feels a little bit like the Olympics. You know, every kind of fraction of a second can matter. Um, And so um, what I am doing for the weeks before and I'll, I'll, you know, maybe I'll I'll walk you through the process of preparing for an argument. But 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 what I am doing most of all for those weeks before the argument is trying to figure out how to give an answer that doesn't make me lose seconds or frankly, even fractions of seconds. And then I'll go to court and um, it's i'm always nervous every time i walk in and every time if i don't have quite tears in my eyes i have something close because there is something really um magnificent and you feel so lucky to be part of this system in which we're you're walking into a court resolving sometimes some of the biggest issues of the day and you're doing it with words and you're doing it on the up and up with logic and argument and not fisticuffs and um um, it's a real privilege um, every time.
0: Um, in the previous term, of course, you were involved with a case called Fulton, um, which is kind of a package of cases. I think that we've seen in recent years and will see in years going forward. Um, sort of religious uh, exemption cases and you know individual choices or putting putting one group's choice against another's. Um, how would you characterize those cases and what can you tell us about the Fulton case.
3: Um, You know I tend to be personally very respectful toward those who are religious but at the same time I am worried that the Supreme Court is starting to go off the deep end when it comes to free exercise claims at the Supreme Court. So maybe I'll start by just talking about what this Fulton case was about and then broadening the discussion to the other cases that the Supreme Court has been thinking about. So uh, and on
1: Fulton, um, you were involved.
3: Yeah, I argued Fulton, so I argued it for the city of Philadelphia. So basically, the city of Philadelphia has had um, a foster care program for for you know decades, and what it does is it contracts with thirty private agencies uh, to screen potential foster care parents, um, and those uh, agencies ask parents, you know, about their, you know, health and, you know, uh, practices in terms of their finances, all sorts of stuff, just to make sure they're suitable parents for these vulnerable children. Uh, A newspaper in Philadelphia a few years ago did an undercover investigation in which it was revealed that two of those 30 agencies discriminated against LGBT parents, so they wouldn't screen them. They said it violated their religious precepts to screen them, uh, to determine whether or not they met the state's secular criteria for being a good foster care parent. So this, the city called these two, and they said, look, you know, we have a non-discrimination policy. We've had it since, I think, 1961. It's had sexual orientation in it since 1982, gender identity since, I think, 2003. Uh, and, you know, are you violating this? And ultimately, those two agencies said, yes, we are. We, it's against our religion. One agency changed its practice in response to the inquiry. The other said no. So that agency called Catholic Social Services had about $26 million in contracts with the city. The city said, look, you know, uh, about $24 million in the contracts aren't about foster care screening. You're not discriminating. Uh, you're just taking care of foster children, and so we'll continue that, but with respect to the screening part of the contract, since you are discriminating, that violates our non-discrimination ordinance, and so we are going to not renew your contract. At that point, the the private agency sued the city and said, it's our constitutional right to get this money, and the case went to the Court of Appeals, um, and uh, uh, the Court of Appeals said cities is a, is absolutely in the right. Um, you know yeah, that if you're taking private, if you're taking government funds, you have to obey the government's non-discrimination policy. That the government was, you know, the government could have screened the foster care parents on their own and not discriminated. And so, if they're going to use a private agency to do that, then they can extend that same non-discrimination requirement to the private agency, because the private agency is under no compulsion to take these funds. They could just not screen kids altogether. Anyway, um, that's the way the case went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the, The Catholic agency wanted to use this case to overrule a earlier Supreme Court decision from 1990 called Employment Division versus Smith in uh, Employment Division versus Smith was written by Justice Scalia, uh, obviously one of the most prominent conservative jurists of the time, and what he said is that if you have a law of general applicability that isn't infected by some sort of hostility to religion, then it can be applied even if it has a disproportionate effect on a religious community. So the question in that case was about peyote Uh, which is a hallucinogen, but also taken as a sacrament by by certain Native American tribes. And what Justice Scalia said is, you can enforce the laws against peyote, even against the tribes, even if it has a disproportionate impact on the tribes, because it's a law of general applicability done for health and safety. So here, The city, you know, and I argued the case in the Supreme Court. We said basically the same thing. This is a general applicability thing. It's not just geared at Catholic social services. You could be any religious entity or any non religious entity if you prohibited, uh, you know, screening of LGBT uh, foster parents on the basis of whatever your belief may be. That violates the non discrimination clause. And what the challengers said was, well, You know we got to get rid of employment division versus smith because it's impairing the free exercise of religion and um you know so i argued the case in the court um and fortunately uh the the court was focused not really on that big question of overruling employment division versus smith as much as the factual particulars of this case Um, they took the view ultimately that the city had shown some hostility to religion In enforcing its policy. Um, You know, I respectfully disagree with that, um, you know, for reasons that I've said elsewhere. Um, But nonetheless, that's where the court was. And so a kind of big fireworks holding uh, didn't happen in that case. But that is certainly what is being teed up now. State after state has anything from you know masking requirements to vaccination requirements to requirements about gathering in uh, you know in spaces and banning you know you know banning you know groups of people uh, in churches but it, well, in other places and so one of the things the court has been starting to get into is this question about whether these generally applicable laws demonstrate a hostility to religion, uh, making it harder for people to go to church or to sing in church. And some of the laws, you know, in some jurisdictions probably have been motivated by an anti-religious bias. They, you know, let people go and gamble and do all sorts of stuff, but not go to church. Um, And even though it has, you know, so they exempt certain institutions from, um, from these requirements. And so those ones are obviously more vulnerable. But I do think you know we're starting to face some of these ultimate questions about whether you know religion is being abused um, there's a case that i think was just argued in the sixth circuit or will be in which some entities said that uh, religious entities said that wearing masks violates their religious precepts because god's design is to show uh is god's design can't be altered and so people have to be able to show their face because that's part of God's design, to which I thought, well, you know, that's a kind of problem with clothes, too. (laughs) Um,
0: uh, Not to mention beards and so forth. but. But, of
3: course, we can't
1: judge... The standards of any religious belief by logic, every religion is will fail that from the point of view of the the, the non-believer. No, as but long I do want to make sure that it is sincere. Right. as long right. as feel, it's sincere. I mean, right, no, I'm no, we
3: are. church of We are. and Jim Morrison. We we are in agreement. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, on on uh, I want to make one point because I know Neil has to. Uh, we're coming close to, the, close to the end of our our time, and Neil needs to head out at a certain point. Uh, on the facts of Fulton. Um, it, um, I think there was a particularly strong argument for it, the city, um, and the city ends up losing. They're not merely regulating some um, private group. Um, um, uh, the, the city is um, uh, farming out, um, subcontracting, um, I would say, an inherently Government function, which is 100%. Who, who has custody over another over human being—the
3: most vulnerable people in our society. So, so this cases. this isn't Absolutely. actually
1: a place where that's the acme of private freedom, like a private church meeting on Sunday. This is the discharge of a public. 100%. Function
3: um, that and, and there it's page one of our brief Akhil and page two and probably fifteen other pages in the brief <laughs> okay. and of course the oral argument uh, and that got me zero, zero votes, votes. <laughs> right and I'm I'm with you bro I feel your pain
0: <laughs> okay so uh, you know kind of a long clip there but uh, you know give you a sense of the uh, the. The gentleman that argued the case before the court. And, of course, you can listen to his argument, as we pointed out in our last episode, on uh, Oye.org.
1: And as we also pointed out in our last episode, I'm not afraid to sometimes say, actually, oh, all the justices blew it. Um, in our uh, earlier recap episode, we talked about the Chafalo. Case The so-called faithless elector case, and my claim was all nine of them um, in that case really screwed the pooch, which can happen sometimes because they're deciding a lot of issues and they're not experts on each and every issue. So here it's now here's the difference on Shaflo. Oh, I'd, I've really studied the Electoral College in great detail. On the Fulton thing, I don't know the facts of the case. I was listening to to Neil's narrative. I I hadn't read um, the briefs in that case. So on that one, you know, um, my inclination that this seems a little problematic has to be more tentative because I haven't done the kind of detailed um, work that I do claim that I have done on the Electoral College. Our audience in this podcast um, deserves to get and what we are Offering what we are vouching for, promising is genuinely expert analysis, at least on some things, and and I'll try to distinguish between the issues where I think I really am a or the uh, leading expert, as I. And I do claim that for the Electoral College. I'm, I'm for example, the the, the father, or a father of um, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and I've I've written many many different pieces at, at different levels of generality about different aspects of of the Electoral College. And but here I, I don't know as much, and I, and so I was pretty emphatic that Chafalou gets it deeply wrong. This one seems to me off in a fundamental way because I think. Uh, issues of custody of which adult actually um, has legal authority over a vulnerable human being, not their biological child. You could say it's pre-political when you have your, your quote, your own kid, just um, in the natural way, biologically. The government doesn't assign parents. You, you, you just are a parent because you, you gave birth. Um, But the foster care situation is not that at all. It's bringing together people who actually are at time, one, genuine, uh, they're they're persons, let's imagine they're even citizens of the United States under the 14th Amendment, all born in the United States, and and they're strangers to each other, and the government is making some strangers, actually the the legal guardians and and custodians over, over others, very vulnerable. That seems a quintessentially governmental function and not... Um, as i said the the domain of of pure private freedom and and religion uh, where um uh, religious claims are are out there acme like the right i would say of a religion to decide on sunday for itself what its religious service is going to look like, what hymns they're going to sing, what sacred texts they're going to um, recite and discuss, whom they're going to admit into their congregation and whom not, who will be the, the religious, the spiritual leaders of, of that flock. Just so we're clear, because I, I want our audience to understand this, um, churches are allowed to discriminate, and they do. They discriminate on grounds of religion. For example, they, they say, well, this is a place um, if you're in this denomination, but not, you know, if you're in that denomination. They discriminate uh, our mainstream churches, some of them, on grounds of, of sex, for example. So just very clear, and, and I will defend their constitutional right to do so. The Catholic Church is, of course, allowed to say um, we only want Catholics to be priests and popes. Jews need not apply, bluntly. And in many domains of life, that would be wrong and and improper, especially if government ever did that. But for the Catholic Church, that's partly what defines the Catholic Church, is they say we're a group of of Catholics. But they're not only allowed to discriminate on grounds of religion, which is constitutive, arguably, of of being a religion. They're allowed to discriminate, and they do discriminate, on grounds of sex. They say um, we want our spiritual leaders, our priests, to be... Um, male in the image of Christ, um, and we want our uh, pontus, our popes, uh, to be uh, male uh, in the image of Christ, and and they're allowed to do that. I would say constitutionally have a strong First Amendment a right. That's um, very different than the custody situation, as uh, uh, you heard in the at exchange with Neil. In my view,
0: of course, the subsequent guest that we have, which we'll be playing clip from in a little while, Linda Greenhouse in her recent book, Justice on the Brink, discusses the Fulton case. Yes. And she takes issue. What she says is that the case was decided not... And as you heard, you know, that the purpose of bringing the litigation in part was to try to get rid of Smith. And ultimately, they don't get rid of Smith. um, And they decide the case on other grounds. And part of what Linda says, they said, um, was... That the chief justice makes an argument that uh, that there were exceptions to the city's terms that they that they they you know, they, they they didn't have a law of general applicability because they were exceptions, and then Neil in his paper said, and they didn't we didn't get into this in the discussion, that well the the point in the decision making process where the church was excluded was not in the part where there are exclusion where there are exceptions that there was a two part process and the, the second part of the process was where the exceptions took place the church had already been excluded before they even got to that so that you know so it was so it was complicated and uh, right and,
1: and stepping out of the weeds just for a minute cuz part of what we're trying to do is to give some of our Uh, audience just a sense of what we've done in the first year in the podcast so just stepping away from the details our audience can expect sometimes that when we we uh, tackle an issue maybe the first time it's very technical and complicated in a certain way but but often we'll come back to it and see it from another perspective maybe with another a guest later in the series we didn't know this when we first had an episode about my um, idea for so-called term limits um, mm-hmm. uh, when I came up with 18 arguments for 18 year of of primary service on, on the court. But it turns out that because of things that happen in the, uh, the real world, as they say, the so-called real world, the Biden commission uh, hearings and then the Biden commission report, we return to that um, uh, 18 year idea in two subsequent episodes um, so so Fulton was a really interesting case I didn't know a lot about it when Neil first started to tell me uh, about it I, I was cited actually prominently in the the brief that that Neil and his uh, protege Tom Schmidt one of my mentees um, uh, composed, and 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 we, we returned to, to, to that issue when we talked about Amy Coney, are uh, we, we um, uh, Barrett and a certain uh, a separate opinion that she had in Fulton, and we talked about it again in um, the episode with Linda Greenhouse. So so one thing that our audience can expect is that from time to time um, we're going to come back and and take another look at some of these really important cases, like on issues like the issue of church and state in America. Or the issue of abortion in America, which the uh, Greenhouse also talks about, and then of course that we, we talked about with with uh, Nadine Strassen, or the the issue of our our electoral system and presidential election system and presidential succession system, and so there there are there are deep themes uh, of the podcast that will um, uh, recur from time to time.
0: Yeah, and I think that we don't necessarily assume like prerequisite knowledge, except you know, it'd be nice if you read the Constitution. Um, but, uh, but it may be that to treat an issue seriously, we do have to get into the weeds a little bit. And in cases like that, we typically will give you the weeds. So, for example, when we, we, we saw the case, uh, the Dobbs case, the abortion case coming up, um, we realized that questions of precedent were going to be primary and so, Professor Moore conducted a master class on precedent on our podcast um, in episode forty-seven and forty-eight, where you, before the oral argument, correct? Yes,
1: in anticipation of what I thought would be the the core of the oral argument,
0: right? Because we we don't want to shortchange you and give you a you know a dumbed down version of arguments that would not be very useful to you, because you know someone that maybe knew more would be able to refute your your argument, so. So this way we, we try to give you what you need in order to understand what, you know, what one needs to to know um, to discuss these things.
1: Yes, we do not ever dumb things down for our audience. We have a lot of respect for the audience of this podcast.
0: And speaking of respect, I thought it was interesting to to hear Neil talk about his approach to walking into the Supreme Court when he when he makes his arguments that he he clearly is an institutionalist he's a i I think it's fair to say liberal democrat he appears on msnbc daily um as a pundit but also he's, he's clearly opinionated um and uh and that's fine
1: and he's a child of immigrants, as am I. And I was deeply. And he, he reminds me of he's a, of myself in some ways, a younger version of myself. And 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 he said, when we're doing this with words and not fisticuffs, and and um, uh, when my parents um, are uh, growing up in the Indian subcontinent, they're living through a civil war where many things were were decided by. By bullets. And so my family doesn't take that for granted. There are people in our family who died in that um, armed uh, struggle. And, um, and in my family, we don't take for granted the, um, this extraordinary Lincolnian project in which ballots will decide, not bullets, that they'll decide elections. And, and, and reasons and arguments uh, will decide court cases and not fisticuffs. And that's what was so troubling, you see, going all the way back to our first um, episode about what happened on January 6th of of, of 2021, um, is it was just deeply respectful of the ballot process. What I didn't like about Chaffalo, by the way, is it didn't understand that ballot and the electors actually cast ballots means secret ballot, And so if it's secret ballot, you, you know, the, the state, you know, can't um, oblige you to vote one way or another. They're not supposed to technically even know how you voted that that was built into the constitutional word um, ballot. But, but this is Neal, the
0: electors, how the electors vote. Yes. So how, how the electors vote, the, the
1: members of the so-called electoral college, the word college doesn't appear in the constitution, but you heard in Neil's voice, I think the tone of of many an immigrant and and uh, and many an immigrant child, this country is an extraordinary one, an exceptional one, and uh, we should be proud of that. And, and we have obligations to to uh, keep that up. We can't take it for granted. That's. The deep lesson of of my book, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds, Um, (laughs) the words that made us America's constitutional conversation, 1760 to 1840, and and just the title and subtitle. It's about words and conversation, you know, and not force of arms. Now, these were words designed to create um, a, a safe regime that, that, that would be able to, to protect itself by force of arms against all enemies, foreign and domestic. But it was fundamentally the Constitution, a, a product of a conversation. It was words peacefully drafted, submitted to an entire continent for peaceful deliberation and peaceful decision. And in that entire year, 1787 to 88, when we, the people of the United States, did, in fact, ordain and establish a constitution, that's sort of the the middle of the book, the the high point of the book. The book begins in 1760, ends in 1840, but the crest of the book um, is this year that changes everything, where, with words, we Americans change the world um, with a constitution that's put to a vote, and people are allowed to be for it or against it, it's a product of epic free speech. And in fact, the people who lose are listened to, and they had good arguments. And some of those arguments became what we call the Bill of Rights. So, so Neil is talking about Article Three and the judiciary and what it feels like to be in the solic- uh, to, to to argue cases before the United States Supreme Court and the awe and reverence that he has for that you know judicial system um, and the words that made this is. Um, a, a, by a similar, you know, pro, um, an immigrant kid um, that it, it has this awe and reverence for another element of the um, the, the project, which is just the Constitution itself—not just the judiciary, but the Constitution itself—as all about basically uh, words and reason and conversation, and not fisticuffs. And, Andy, that's what this podcast is about. We're actually not trying to be screamy-yelly. We're actually trying, you and I, to talk about things together, to bring people on from the left um, from time to time. Um, I would say Linda Greenhouse is left of center. Um, from the right uh, time to time, uh, we had Ed Whalen uh, from uh, the National Review and the Ethics in uh, 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 Public Policy Center, uh, right of center. And and we're going to talk to both of them. Our audience may be sick uh, of my saying from time to time, "Oh, so and so is my friend, so and so is my friend." But but I actually want to try to be in friendship and in conversation with people on the right of the court, um, Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito, on on the left of the court, Kagan and 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 Breyer and 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 Sotomayor. And you heard all of that, actually, Andy. I think, and and not just what Neil said, but the way he said it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you say you like to say that uh, you know that we had freedom of speech before we had the First Amendment that the way yes. that the that the Constitution was adopted um, is itself evidence and of course that's before we had the Bill of Rights um, uh, evidence that there was freedom of speech. Um, Which is why this,
1: newspapers loom so large, you know, in my iconography in the pictures that I splash on uh, my printed page and in the stories that, that I tell yes. it's absolutely before there was the first amendment, there was freedom of speech in the press.
0: Right. Um, and so that the, the actual process of adoption is itself evidence, uh, for its legality. Um, but I think I would, you would take it a step further here. It's a similar point, but but I, you know, I think what you just said would would make it go even further, which is the peacefulness of the process is itself evidence that this is the way we do things in America peacefully. And January sixth violated that. Yes, that's diff- That's deeper in the sense than. Sp- than the freedom of speech, yes. But it's the fact that that we accomplish political change through a peaceful process, and it's so deeply offensive to that ethic to storm the Capitol as the vote to stop the votes from being counted. That's what really hurt, you know. Right, and
1: that, and that's what hurt not just on January
0: sixth, but in the eighteen sixties.
1: You see, because Lincoln said there was an election, I won it fair and square. Um, ballots have decided, and bullets aren't allowed to to overturn the verdict of ballots, but there'll be another election. Um, and in four years, you can vote me out. But that's how we uh, do it. That, that's the deep Lincoln idea. But since you mentioned freedom of speech, I have gone, I'm on record as saying there's, the Constitution isn't just about freedom of speech, but and this is not fully enforceable, um, but there's a duty to listen. It's not just freedom to speak. It's of speech, which is actually a process. And I think Americans for this project to work, Americans actually have to try to listen to, to, to each other. Um, again, it's, it's almost impossible to enforce that. It's an I- ideal. Um, but one of the things we're trying to do on this podcast, as we're sort of reintroducing ourselves to um, audience members especially recent ones uh, you know on our first anniversary basically in this um, two-part recap one of the things we're trying to do is again to model that by bringing people on from different parts of the ecosystem and different uh, legal ecosystem and different parts of the political spectrum and giving them a chance to to tell us what they think about this or that or the other thing and then we we listen we push back sometimes and and then uh, we see what happens
0: that's true. We don't get screamy yelly in the sense that we don't try to drown each other out. But on occasion, uh, one of us might get passionate. And yes, wh- and, and, you, and,
1: and, and Andy, by one of us, a- Andy is referring. Audience members, you know which one he's referring to.
0: <laughs> I mean, not to say I'm not a passionate individual, but I uh, I view my role here as uh, team sanity, as you've said in the past. Um, but anyway, uh, so one of the issues, of course, that arouses... Passionate Americans is uh, is that of abortion, and we recently uh, had a series of episodes about that. As I mentioned, um, and I think one of our episodes that inspired the most attention uh, was uh, our episode called "Row, Row, Row," um, and your your, your boat. <laughs> yes. So, uh, for in that episode, we played some tapes, uh, some ep- excerpts, some clips from the oral argument uh, in the Dobbs case, and we commented on them. So I'm going to play some of those for you here.
3: Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive?
1: Right. So with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, it is possible, and you need to read some history. With all due respect, I'm outside the court and not just actually what the justices have said. I know you're a justice, and I'm not. OK, Abraham Lincoln thought that Dred Scott was completely made up. And it was. Dred Scott was an embarrassment. And it was actually based on substantive due process. It said blacks couldn't be citizens, just like Roe was based on substantive due process and says, feet I can't be persons. So and Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, put people on the court who he was hoping would overrule Dred Scott. And there was nothing wrong with that. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Dred Scott was baloney. Uh, Abraham Lincoln called it baloney. He called it, quote, an astonisher in legal history. He called bullshit on the court. And there's nothing wrong with reputing a decision that's made up. That's not illegitimate. Because your ultimate oath, with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, is to the Constitution. If Roe was right, defend it on the merits. Say it's right and explain to me why it's right and where it really is in the Constitution. And then I'll cut you a lot of slack. But, but just saying row 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 your boat um just that we said it and we said it again and we said it again and so therefore that that makes it right no it doesn't um you say stench because there are new justices that's not a bug that's a feature that there are allowed to be new justices that there are elections um and judicial replenishment Andy, you know that I have a more regularized plan for a judicial replenishment every 18 years, but that's, that's, there's nothing, there's no stench involved where, when the, the people, they're allowed to have views on the Constitution too, you know, and in the long run, they're allowed to amend the Constitution, you, you see, the Constitution came from them, it's amendable by them, and if you justices only persuade yourselves in your little epistemic bubble that this is actually an impressive opinion, it, and it's not. Roe is not an impressive opinion. I've never thought so since the very first time I read it as a law student. My brother clerked for Harry Blackman. I he quite loved Harry Blackman, but it's not a well crafted opinion. It just isn't in my expert view. And and with all due respect, Justice Sotomayor, I do constitutional every day. Um, I, Andy hates it when I say that, but but she's appealing to her expertise, Andy, see, as a justice, and I'm appealing to my expertise to counter, you know, she's on the Supreme Court and, you know, I'm a schlub, okay? So I'm saying, I'm a schlub, but oh, I study the Constitution every day and I study history. And it's not a stench when the court actually has corrected its errors, as it did when we, the people, repudiated Dred Scott in an amendment, whose first sentence says everyone's a citizen. Dred Scott, everyone born in America is a citizen. Dred Scott says blacks can't be citizens. And we the people said, oh, yes they can. Okay, that's a constitutional amendment. Of course the people are allowed to do that. There's nothing stenchy about that. Um, But even before that, Justice Sotomayor, Abraham Lincoln's attorney general um, issued a passport to a black who asked for one because Um, The attorney general, Bates, thought that Dred Scott was wrong, that blacks could be citizens, and he was going to issue a a, a passport. And that's just simply because Lincoln won the election. Um, There's nothing stenchy about that. That's not a bug. It's a feature to repeat that um, we have elections um, of presidents and senators, and they, in turn, pick justices um, and 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 those justices may have a different view because the people have a different view, and and those different views are expressed in elections. Abraham Lincoln ran against Dred Scott, every bit as much as Trump and and Ronald Reagan, for that matter, and every Republican in between ran against Roe. That's not a bug; it's a feature. It's not stenchy, and you say, oh well, there. This is now yet another, it's a fourth formulation. I didn't quite have it before. My, I had three formulations of court worshipers that um, it has to be, you know, there has to be some special justification or has to be wronger the day it was decided or if precedent means anything. This is a fourth formulation. I actually should have talked about it last time, that um, it can never be proper to overrule a case merely because there's new court personnel. I don't think that at all. Um, if an existing justice changes his or her mind, that's okay. Um, why is it somehow not okay if that one justice leaves and another justice comes on? And that new justice has a different point of view. And just to remind you, for example, Gobitis said that people could be put in prison or, or could be punished um, for refusing to um, salute the flag, these school kids, uh, 1941. Uh, that um, uh, The Supreme Court said... Um, uh, the, the The government can actually punish students for refusing to salute the American flag. And there was actually pushback against that. Some people uh, were outraged in, in the community, civil libertarians and others. Some justices changed their mind, maybe because of that, because unlike Justice Breyer, they're actually listening to other people thinking, you know, is it possible I made a mistake here? Um, and there were new justices and Barnett, West Virginia versus Barnett, Two years later, overruled Gobitis. And Justice Sotomayor, West Virginia versus Barnett, is one of the the landmark cases. It's one of the great cases in the 20th century. It's up there with Brown versus Board of Education, which, by the way, repudiated Plessy, and there was nothing stench. It didn't formally overrule it, but it distanced itself from it. There was nothing stenchy about that, um, and that was the product in part of elections where we have new justices representing a different um, vision, one that was more open to black equality, um, and nothing stenchy about listening to people who are criticizing Plessy, saying Plessy was wrong. And, and, and Justice Breyer, nothing wrong um, with um, opening your ears to the possibility that the court got it wrong earlier, as I believe it got it wrong in Plessy, and it got it wrong in Dred Scott. Um, so if you think that Roe was right, Great. Let's have a debate on the merits of that. Show me where in the constitution it comes from or what in that opinion is actually a good argument. Defend the argument. Don't just hide behind the skirts of precedent and, and, and words that really you know, that pack a lot of punch, but, but don't actually have any proper analytic
0: content words like stench. So kind of the ultimate, um, Argument about this, the ultimate uh, position held by the precedent worshippers, um, was teased out of uh, the advocates uh, for Roe. Uh, in this case, Rickelman, uh, Attorney Rickelman, and, and General Prologger, um, the notion that precedent can't be overruled uh, just because it's wrong. So here's here's Ms. Rickelman on that.
4: Because of the view that a previous precedent is wrong, Your Honor, has never been enough for this court to overrule, and it certainly shouldn't be enough here when there's 50 years of precedent. Instead, the court has required something else, a special justification, and the state doesn't come forward with any special justification. It makes the same exact arguments the court already considered and rejected in its stare decisis analysis in Casey, and in fact there is nothing different. There is no less need today than 30 years ago or 50 years ago for women to be able to make this fundamental decision for themselves about their bodies lives and health
0: uh and that's one and that's so that's uh attorney uh, Rickelman and uh general prologger uh, a solicitor general of united states in response to uh and and this is in a colloquy with Uh, Justice Alito, which we're also going to play for you, because his response is interesting. And I did notice, Akil, that in her comments here, she uses the formulation, it's almost a meme, if precedent means anything, uh, and so on, which we referred to in the previous podcast. Um, But she says... Can a decision be overruled simply because it was
4: erroneously wrong, even if nothing has changed between the time of that decision and the time when... The Court is called upon to consider whether it should be overruled. Yes or no? Can you give me a yes or no answer on that? This court, no, has never overruled in that situation just based on a conclusion that the decision was wrong. It has always applied the stare decisis factors and likewise found that they weren't overruling in that instance. And and Casey did that. It applied the stare decisis factors. If stare decisis is to mean anything, it has to mean that that kind of extensive consideration of all of the same arguments for whether to retain or discard a precedent itself is an additional layer of precedent that needs to be relied on and can form a, a stable foundation of the rule of law.
1: I call bullshit that um, I call bullshit in several ways. So both of them expressly said the court has never overruled a constitutional case just because it's wrong. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. Did I say it seven times? Maybe only said it six. There are at least seven times, damn it, in the 20th century alone um, that they did that, including West Virginia versus Barnett, which you talked about before, and Erie versus Tompkins. If I'm wrong on that, tell me why I'm wrong. Show me that they actually relied on something else. I've been on record as saying that for the last 20 years, the first time in a landmark article in the Harvard Law Review. Um, uh, And then in my 2012 book, um, on a chapter called Preston's Proper Place. Um, uh, And the landmark article has been cited by the Supreme Court. Um, I, I repeated it in another piece that's also been cited by the Supreme Court. So, if I'm wrong on the merits, call me on it, but I say at least seven times, I'm not even counting, actually, um, which others have, have, have suggested might be an The legal tender cases um, uh, in the late 19th century, but I say seven, at least seven times, at least, maybe more, in the 20th century, there have been naked overrulings, by which I mean simply that the wrongness of the previous case was enough to overrule it, constitutional cases. so um that's point one um point two i said that casey says otherwise and what we talked about in the last episode the casey dictum but the casey was unprecedented in saying that i, I said they've they said it again uh, in an opinion by justice kagan more recently a majority opinion it had uh, uh, more than five votes actually for it, um, cooper versus allen but again it's inconsistent with um it's it, what the court has actually done so that's one thing you heard a cup co- another formulation that there has to be you know um the case has to be wronger today than it was before um that there has to be some new factor um uh, above and beyond what the previous court um had identified and you remember i said that's one of the formulations of the, the present worshipper. so uh, audience members, I was absolutely prophetic in telling you what the argument was going to be about that the, the, the specific tropes and, and, and memes and formulations, but it's not true. Um, and um, uh, the National Review Online, shortly after the oral argument, actually posted a, a couple of pieces uh, with my name, maybe even in the title, saying, you know, Amar showed that these things aren't true, true long ago um, in, 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 his scholarship. So this is bad when the solicitor of the United States gets up there and says flatly false things about the history of the United States Supreme court and it's, it's precedent practices.
0: Okay. So that's a long segment, but I think it's really powerful, um, in going through some of the things that this podcast does and that, uh, we give you the actual words of people and, and, uh, we you know, have legal background and arguments in the two episodes before that, and then you let them have it. Um, and the passion
1: that you're hearing there is not actually passion about um, when life begins and the, the deepest issues of human existence and, and morality. I do have views on that. I, um, as I'm sure it does everyone in uh, our uh, audience and people have different views, and and I actually often am, am much quieter and softer um, when I'm talking about something like that because I'm, I'm so aware that, that 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 people feel very strongly um, in opposite ways on when life begins, for example. But what really I got passionate about was actually um, law and history. In a way, I don't like it when the solicitor general of the United States says, as I said, flatly false things about actual past Supreme Court practice, um, and that's the sort. Of, and maybe I'm a little bit more passionate about that because I think um, I have maybe more expertise on that. As um, um, to when human life begins and, and how to think about it. You know, I have my views, but, but everyone else has their views, and I don't think that my views should count for any more than theirs. They're, they're, they're morally serious um, fellow citizens, um, and, uh, um, and and I can't claim any expertise over them, frankly, on, on many of these things. They're, they're, they're deep mysteries of life. But on the Supreme Court's actual precedent practices, I studied that in great detail. I put the results of my scholarly studies in places like um, the, the forward to the Supreme court um, issue of the uh, Harvard law review um, in November, uh, in November, 2000, and in a chapter uh, of a 2012 book, America's unwritten constitution called precedence proper place. Yes. And I get passionate about that because my job as a scholar is to actually try to identify the truth, find it, and bring it to light, to disseminate it. Um, Yale's motto is looks at Veritas. Um, if I'm wrong, uh, show me that I'm wrong. Um, I'm very open to that. That's how science um, uh, progresses. That's how human knowledge advances. But you can't ignore it and and just not be aware that, that uh, this is a, a claim that has been put forth in very important places by a significant scholar. You, you have to know that. And when it's obvious that the Solicitor General of the United States, who was statute, supposed to be learned in the law, but is not a law professor the way Neil Tatial um, is a law professor as well as acting solicitor general. When the the United States doesn't seem to know that, and the other litigant too, I get passionate because we have to be truth-based, and especially because I happen to be, as you know, Andy, rather strongly pro-choice, rather passionately, in fact, pro choice but I also believe that we we have to have truth on our side we cannot be guilty of fake news and I I, I hold my team maybe to a higher standard in part because they're my team
0: I think that's a, important as a general uh, statement about the podcast I think specifically I, I don't I wouldn't say that the solicitor General was lying no I think I think you know I, I think she was just I, mistaken um, correct but but she was mistaken in strong terms, never, you know, use, use that kind of word. You know, you would think you would only use that word if you had researched it. Right. Never. Right, um, but but, but so. you're
1: hearing what you're seeing is the truth is, and this is, you know, tough love for my friend, justices. Most of them aren't scholars. Um, they're, they're earnest judges, good lawyers who are doing their best. And most litigants aren't scholars. They're, they have certain um, gifts of, of, of expression, of, of, of cut and thrust and, and, and parry, but they're, they're not actually experts. But I do hold the Solicitor General of the United States to a particular high standard because the statute actually says, and this goes all the way back to language in the Judiciary Act of 1789, when the, the words actually I think were used in connection with the Attorney General of the United States, that this is a position designed for someone learned, learned, in the law it has um, historically been the scholars position in government Um, just off the top of my head let me just free associate and tell you about some of the solicitors general like attorneys general solicitors Mm -hmm. general not solicitor generals Mm -hmm. um, in years past well there's erwin griswold he was the dean of the harvard Law school. He was a tax law expert. But there's a building at the Harvard Law School named for him, called Griswold. He was a solicitor general. This is I'm just even picking some modern solicitors general. Elena Kagan. I told our audience the story about uh, when uh, she hired me as a visiting professor at Harvard, and I, I took my son um, Vic up on his 10th birthday, and we got her her autograph. She was solicitor general of the United States, professor and dean at the Harvard Law School. Since I'm talking about Harvard. Um, because our audience is probably sick of all my Yale references. We, we could talk about Archibald Cox, solicitor General in the in the Kennedy administration, also a professor at Harvard Law School. My own uh, constitutional law teacher, um, uh, Robert Bork, professor of constitutional law at um, Yale Law School. Uh, the great Walter Dellinger, someone I just hold in the absolute highest regard, both as a lawyer and as a A wonderful human being. He was actually on the Biden mission. I was deeply honored to to be uh, the teacher, the professor of his son, Hampton, my colleague, Drew Day, the, the, the late, great Drew Day's. Solicitor General of, of the United States. This is a position that's supposed to be of someone especially learned in the law, and I would say especially in, in constitutional law, ideally, although not all the, the scholars on that list were actually truthfully constitutional scholars. Um, Archibald Cox was actually more of a labor law specialist in certain ways, and and Erwin Griswold was more of a tax law scholar, actually. But, but, they, but um, they were all very distinguished scholars. And and there are others. Oh, you know, going all the way back to um, William Howard Taft, for example, um, a very distinguished uh, constitutional law professor. Um, I'm actually now just um, uh, scrolling down the list and um, could have mentioned um, uh, Charles Freed, another professor at uh, Harvard. So
3: um, there you have it.
0: You know, in following up on our discussion about abortion, we have a, uh, a question here from uh, George Avram. George says uh, in episode 48, so that's the episode before Ro, 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 where we've, we've talked about uh, for two episodes at that point, kind of giving the primer on precedent. Uh, Professor Moore indicates that the best argument for upholding the right to abortion is based on unenumerated rights and that Mississippi's 15-week ban is out of step with other states, the practice of other states should be persuasive in determining, in determining the unenumerated right to abortion at a period of time past 15 weeks. But isn't the basis of this solely because the Supreme Court in Roe held the viability of line was greater than 15 weeks, and that certainly wasn't the law in states at the time, and isn't 15 weeks atextual and not consistent, with the fundamentalist perspective of stare decisis. I love the podcast, thank you.
1: and I love the question, so thank you. Um, I've tried to address it um, uh, most directly in uh, chapter three of my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, where I talk about unenumerated rights. Um, And uh, an early version of that chapter has actually uh, uh, appeared as an article in the Yale Law Journal that we'll be sure to um, uh, uh, put in our show notes. Um, um, But just let me take a step back, remind everyone where we are in the constitutional matrix. We're talking about rights. Not everything in the Constitution is about rights. Um, Some of it's about um, the separation of powers or federalism, how, how government is actually organized. We're talking about rights. We're talking about a certain kind of um, right that is an unenumerated right, a right that's not textually um, s- specified. If a right is textually specified, um, judges should enforce it. And we don't look to whether the right is currently popular or unpopular. It's in the Constitution, so you enforce it. And if people don't like that, they can amend it out of the Constitution, just like, for example, prohibition got added um, into the Constitution in the 18th Amendment and and taken out of the Constitution with a repealing amendment, the 21st Amendment. So if we're talking about rights and the right is in the Constitution, oh, judges should enforce it, Um, even if the people have begun to backslide. Maybe it was put in the Constitution out of fear that the people might backslide and judges enforce it unless and until there's an amendment. But here we're talking about what are, by hypothesis, um, unenumerated rights. They're not textually specified, and yet the Constitution seems pretty clearly to say those things exist. The, the Ninth Amendment talks about rights that are of the people that are not enumerated. Those are rights protected uh, at the founding against the federal government. The entire Bill of Rights basically protected against the federal government after the Civil War, There's a a new amendment, and it also um, uh, gestures toward unenumerated rights. It says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, some of those privileges or immunities are specified elsewhere in the Constitution things like speech, press. A petition, assembly, free exercise, right to keep and bear arms, the right against unreasonable searches and seizures. Those rights at the founding um, were protected against the federal government in places like the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. We could talk about other rights in the Fifth and the Sixth, due process and and jury trial and public trial and speedy trial and a um, uh, right against being compelled to be a witness against yourself or um, made to suffer double jeopardy. So the rights that are specified in the Constitution as applicable against the federal government in what we call the Bill of Rights become applicable against states in general, thanks to that language of the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or enforce any law. I shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And, and, and where do we find those privileges and use? Sometimes elsewhere in the Constitution. They were protected against the federal government, but now they should be protected against states and localities. Lawyers call that incorporation. These rights are incorporated against states and localities by dint of the 14th Amendment, and I'm all in favor of that. I wrote a whole book about that called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. But if that's all the 14th Amendment meant, if that's all that that sentence was meant to do, oh, they could have said no state shall make or enforce any uh, law that shall abridge the, the privileges and immunities identified in Amendments 1 through 8, or something like that, or identified elsewhere in this Constitution. But they didn't do that. They believe, they being the framers, the architects, the Reconstruction Republicans of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, they believe there are unenumerated rights applicable against state and local governments, just as the founders thought there were unenumerated rights in the Ninth Amendment, applicable against the federal government. But the Ninth doesn't quite tell us where to look. The 14th Amendment doesn't quite tell us where to look to find these non-textually specified rights. There are several Possibilities. But one key place to look is in the lived experiences of Americans. Where, where do you find the privileges and amusements in the United States? Um, in what citizens in the United States actually do daily, what states in general respect maybe because of state constitutions, maybe because of state statutes, maybe just because of longstanding custom and practice. So that's where it's actually important to look at actually um, the the, the practices that that, that prevail on the ground in America. And that's where the question um, came in, but it was a brilliant question. And here's where um, I try to answer it. So the last page of that um, uh, chapter on uh, lived rights, um, Uh, unenumerated rights and and the, the corresponding law review article. Here's what I say. If judges may properly strike down highly unusual state or even federal laws that intrude on a lived experience of liberty, uh, like, for example, the the um, contraception law in Griswold, um, which um, was this really weird outlier statute. In 49 of the states, husbands and wives are allowed to to engage um, in uh, use contraception in the privacy of their marital bedroom, but but not in Connecticut. In the Griswold case, so that was easy because um, this law really intruded upon what I call the lived experience of uh, liberty. Let me now go back. Um, so this is a reference to cases like Griswold. And, and Roe is going to be very different because Roe strikes down the laws of 49 states at the time, whereas Griswold strikes down the, the law of one outlier state, Connecticut. Okay, back to the text. If judges may properly strike down highly unusual state or even federal laws that intrude on a lived experience of liberty, there's a risk that government in- governmental innovation and experimentation might be unduly stifled. Trigger-happy judges might kill the first glimmerings of legal reform whenever new issues arise and new approaches begin to win popular support. But this risk can be minimized if judges proceed with caution and humility with close attention to the dangers of what might be called judicial lock-in. The danger is that once a particular government practice has been invalidated by judges, like, say, abortion, the practice will wither away and remain forever off limits, even if a broad swath of Americans would like to see the practice revived at some later point. Such a judicially induced lock-in would turn proper unenumerated rights jurisprudence on its head. Doubtful laws should be judicially invalidated because they're unusual, not unusual simply because they've been judicially invalidated the most democratically sensitive and sophisticated version of lived constitutionalism would avoid judicial lock-in of unenumerated rights by inviting judges or other constitutional decision-makers to reconsider their initial invalidations when presented with updated evidence of recent legislative patterns, like for example, the Mississippi law, or even possibly the Texas law when it comes to abortion. I wrote this many years ago, um, but, but, Um, For example, if many large states were to enact new laws similar to a law previously struck down, new laws with delayed start dates so as to allow for anticipatory judicial review, back to our discussion of of the Dobbs case, such enactments, enactments themselves would be new data to ponder. The court's death penalty jurisprudence offers a suggestive case study. In the late 1960s, Actual executions dropped to zero in America. In response to this apparent national consensus, the court in 1972 seems to hold the death penalty categorically unconstitutional. Over the next four years, both Congress and some 34 states representing an overwhelming majority of the American population pushed back against this ruling with a new round of death penalty statutes. In response the court reconsidered its position and gave its blessing to the penalty when the underlying crime was particularly heinous and strict procedural safeguards were in place. Since then, the court has imposed additional substantive and procedural limits on capital punishment with a close eye on evolving American practices. Here's the final paragraph. Although a wave of new legislation would not ordinarily suffice to trump a precise and inflexible textual right, if it's actually in the text of the Constitution, we must keep in mind that um, um, here we are dealing with various rights that have not been specified in this way in the written Constitution. If the original judicial reason for deeming these rights to be full-fledged constitutional entitlements derive from the fact that American lawmakers generally respected these rights in practice— And such rights should lose their constitutional status if the legislative pattern dramatically changes. In this particular pocket of unwritten constitutionalism, which should ideally emerge as a genuine dialogue among judges, legislators, and ordinary citizens. Now, again, I wrote this long before the the, the recent um, abortion laws that are now before the court in uh, the Dobbs case from Mississippi and the um, the Texas vigilante case and uh, the fetal heartbeat case. Um, but you see there's a general framework that I'm trying to commit myself to, uh, in advance. Um, just as I tried to commit myself to certain other things on presidential impeachment and, and, and other matters before they actually arose.
0: I mean, there's a lot of interesting things in there, which I'm sure you've thought of, uh, in the past, but, um, it strikes me that, uh, it's important to try to differentiate between sort of adding rights and subtracting rights.
1: Yes. Very different this. between adding rights and subtracting rights. And we're going to come back to that in subsequent episodes as we're going to come back to a lot of things that we've talked about today and in, in previous episodes.
0: And also I think it another issue that it raised me just listening to it is that it seems to elevate <laughs> enumerated rights above unenumerated rights in the sense that, um, you know, that there's, this sort of temporal pattern, you know, so you could sort of graph the unenumerated right over time, depending on how states are doing. And, and that would affect whether or not it's a privilege or immunity to be incorporated, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. so there, forth. There,
1: there's, a, there's a different way of thinking about it. They, they Neither should, enumerated rights shouldn't, unenumerated rights shouldn't be disparaged or denied, but they might actually have a different size and shape of, of proper enforcement compared to textually specified rights. You're right. And and let me just um, conclude this uh, little, um, and it's a great question. So thank you to our audience uh, member. But since you mentioned free speech, it's a good example of how there are many different ways of thinking about unenumerated rights, looking at custom and lived practices and and state constitutions and state statutes is one way, but not the only way. Um, In my view, We need to protect free speech, even if there weren't a First Amendment on the books and freedom of the press, because they are implicit in um, the very idea of uh, Republican self-government and having free and fair elections at the state level and the federal level, um, free and fair elections presuppose robust, uninhibited, wide open political discourse. So that's one reason they're, they're implicit. Um, um, just like um, the phrase or the concept of federalism. Is, you won't find the word federalism, but it's part of the very structure of the constitution, checks and balances, rule of law, popular sovereignty. So certain things, they're not textual, but they're um, you they're, you read between the lines and find them. And, and that, that can be a source of unenumerated rights. That, um, For example, it says there's freedom of speech and freedom of the press. What about a private handwritten letter? It's not quite oral speech. It's not quite freedom of the press because there's no printing press. But if we interpolate um, and we connect the dots between speech and press, of course, private letters are part of a larger system of discourse. So sometimes we, we connect the dots between the textual uh, provisions and we try to see what's the bigger system behind it. checks and balances, separation of powers, federalism, freedom of expression above and beyond speech, press, petition, assembly. OK, that's that's one way of deriving an enumerated. Here's another way. Um, and we've talked about this before, freedom of speech and the press were baked into the very process by which the Constitution was itself adopted. You couldn't have had the Constitution without broad free speech and free press criticizing existing um, uh, government officialdom, um, continental and state-based. So, of course, things that the Constitution itself um, presupposed in the very process of being born – you know, they may be um, plausible candidates for um, unenumerated right status. So, there. So, um, in my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, I actually identify several different ways of thinking about unenumerated rights, each with its own logic um, and 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 proper mode of of derivation. Um, that the idea of looking at state customs and state statutes and state constitutions is one pathway that can get you to unenumerated rights, but not the only one.
0: So a lot there. And thank you, Mr. Avram, for opening that <laughs> door, which we will come back to again and again. Yes. Okay. So, you know, uh, that's taking us pretty close to, uh, to the present. We did have uh, another notable guest just recently, in uh, Linda Greenhouse, um, and uh, she uh, gave us one more of our little, uh, you know, discovery clips. Yes, um, we,
1: we, where I learned something, um, and I hope some of our audience might actually uh, uh, learn something. Um, uh, we talked earlier about how Bob Woodward had amazing sources on the Supreme court, um, uh, justices and clerks, and I just assumed that that was true of uh, of Linda, but um, uh, as you're about to hear, um, I was mistaken. I want to remind our audience that one of our first um, very prominent invitees on this podcast series, where where, uh, next week will be fully one year. But one of our first invitees was the great Bob Woodward, who not only brought down at least one president, um, Richard Nixon, but arguably a second, um, Donald Trump, with um, Fear and and Rage, um, which are epic um, books, but also wrote a hugely important expose about the court, the the brethren and 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 Linda's um, books on, on justices on the court are in that broad tradition. Journalist writing um, important books. She wrote one on Justice Blackman becoming Justice Blackman. She co-wrote one on the Burger um, Court with with Mike Kratz and Woodward had all sorts of sources. Also um, justices and, and, and clerks and the like. So so uh, wait,
4: wait, I I have I have to interrupt and oh, okay. I'm going to shock you. I don't have sources. Oh. I mean, I certainly for writing this book, um, I've just sat in my study in Stockbridge, Massachusetts uh, oh, wow. and I for okay. seven months.
1: OK, so you're more of that. That's more of a law professor than the journalist. Um, I, I,
4: I've, I've, I've never had sources on the court. I've never
1: talked to law clerks. Actually. Wow. Wow. OK. Uh, well, so because other uh, folks, you know, we're, we're going to have Joan Biskupik on at a certain point and, I mean, and think, Nina think, Totenberg and I Marcia think, Coyle.
4: I think Joan has great sources. I've never asked her. Uh, you know,
1: I, I just... Oh, wow. Okay, so I, I did not know that. I I've did tried, not know that.
4: I've tried a different path, which is just um, you know, uh, hyper-vigilance in reading everything these people write. And, you know, do I pick up sort of stuff in the, uh, you know, in my little Supreme Court silo that other people have found out and to their satisfaction you know, believed to be true? Yeah, I mean, people talk to me, but but not members of the court.
0: Okay. So, yeah. So that was quite interesting. Um, kind of puts her, her book in a different perspective in, in that sense um, in all her writings. So uh, journalist of a different, of a different sort. Of course, she's a columnist now. We
1: tried to bring, Really interesting people uh often they're more um willing to come when they've got a new book out as as she does as as Gordon Wood did when uh we interviewed him hot on the heels of of power and liberty um, um, we talked with uh mike gerhardt um, um who, we didn't run a clip of him but um that he has a, a really interesting book out about uh, lincoln's mentors and andy and asked him who some of his mentors um were uh, um, we, we had alan dershowitz on alan always has <laughs> at least one new book out i think he he's published all in all close to 30 maybe even more um, so we, we do try to bring our audience some really interesting people who have done really interesting
0: work. I don't know about you, Akil, but I'm pretty happy about how our first year has gone.
1: Yes, I'm even happier as I actually you know, re- review it. Um, it, mm-hmm. it it's, been, it's been a great
0: opening uh, year. And uh, you know the Constitution is uh, what three pages, and yet it sustains us week after week and year after year. So, yeah, so- big, big
1: big pages. If you if, if you had to squeeze it on the three, they'd have to be big, and the print would have to be small. But 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 still, it's a, it's a half a half hours read.
0: Right, and uh, and yet uh, we don't seem to manage to do a half hours talk. <laughs> but- <laughs> Um, but we'll we'll keep at it. And uh, there's all sorts of things coming in the new year, as I said, and plenty of great guests. And uh, like Gil, I'm grateful to you for sharing your insights with all of us every week.
1: And Andy, uh, to you for making this whole thing possible. And to the audience
0: for listening and chiming in. Continue to, please. See you next week.